Andromaque se parfume à la lavande. Atali est resté en extase. Nous disons deux fois, Atali est resté en extase. J'aime les chasses à moi. Clémentine peut se curer les dents. Grand-mère mange nos bonbons. Il est temps de cueillir des tomates. Il n'y a plus de tabac dans la tabatière. Je n'aime pas les crêpes Suzette. Ici Londres. Veuillez écouter maintenant quelques messages personnels. L'éléphant s'est cassé une défense. Nous répétons, l'éléphant s'est cassé une défense. Le cheval bleu se promène sur l'horizon. Les girafes ne portent pas de focole. Pierrot ressemble à son grand-père. Louis a deux cochons. Tante Amélie fait du vélo en short. Les sanglots longs des violons de l'automne bercent mon cœur d'une langueur monotone. Welcome back to the 51st episode of the Professor Penn podcast. David Penn here. That was uh, a tape of a time long ago when Nazi Germany had uh, occupied most of Europe, and uh, that was uh, French, the French, uh, free French. Uh, communicating with French resistors inside of France. They had been uh, suppressed, of course. The French had been suppressed by the Nazis, the Germans, the Germans, Nazism being a political party. Um, and what was that political party? That political party was the party of uh, eugenics. And they had suppressed the French, and the French lost their freedom, and there was resistors, resistors who formed uh, small cells And uh, to organize that uh, resistance, there was communication. And that communication was sent from England, and it was sent uh, via radio wave and was received, and it was uh, an organizing principle for the strategies and tactics that were de deployed by the French people that were in resistance to Nazism. It's nice to remember that. You know, I um, had a great 50th... Uh, episode, and uh, I hope you can go over to Rumble and take a look at it. Uh, some of my best work. And uh, I, I recognize something, something I've thought about my whole life. You, why did Jesus Christ speak in parables? Why did he speak in parables? Why wasn't he just plainly speaking? Well, he spoke in parables because there was people listening to him that didn't like his message. And to avoid sanction from the Sanhedrin and from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the hypocrites and the power structure of the of the uh, Jewish people is what it was. And then the Romans were there too because he was, after all, preaching a radical kind of freedom that was based on faith in God. Uh, he spoke in parables or in riddles because he didn't want to uh, get picked up and uh, whisked away and uh, killed, which happened anyhow. So I think there's something to be learned here uh, by me about uh, 
this uh, World War II period, it, it, for many of us that are watching this, this is a very long time ago. Uh, I don't know. I can't judge. And I, I, I guess I'm going to ask you to tell me in the live chat or get in touch with me. I don't know what the consciousness is amongst the American people about World War II. Tanner, do you have a consciousness of World War II? Um, <clears throat> a little bit, but I was personally just terrible at history class when I was in high school, so I'm not the best person to ask for that. Yeah, but would you say in your generation, the doomers, is there a consciousness about what happened to the world from the World War I to the end of World War II period? I mean, is that something people have in their consciousness? Um, no, not, not generally my age. I'm lucky that my friends do. All my friends and us, like, we discuss about that, so we, we're aware of that. But um, I would not say my generation as a whole, no. There's a lot of people that don't even understand that World War II was not that long ago. Like, they, they think it's in the 1800s. Oh, really? Yeah, there's some well, people that do not understand that it was just, you know, just last night, practically. Great. That's fantastic. You know, I don't know how you can get an 88 million genocide to recede back into history so quickly, but I guess as I think back on my own experience, and we'll talk about that a little bit today, I was born in the 50s, and I was quite conscious, very conscious by the early 60s. And even, you know, by the middle 60s and the 1970s, and people didn't want to deal with World War II. I mean, it, it was still there, but life was good. Uh, we had the post-World War II Democrat liberal order, United States was the master of the universe. Uh, it was great to be an American. Prosperity was breaking out all over the place, and people just forgot. They forgot. So I'm I'm going to embark based on my recent experiences, being informed by what has come before me. The importance of um, speaking in parables. I'm going to depend on you, my co-community member to receive the transmission in the spirit in which I'm giving it. So I'm opening up today, number episode 51, with the radio transmission on radio waves, analog radio waves, analog, to the French resistance, which were just individual people like you and me, people that were living under tyranny, intense tyranny, eugenicist tyranny, the tyranny of the master race, their freedom of speech was curtailed, their freedom to assemble was curtailed, there was extrajudicial jailings and killings throughout the country for the whole period of the Nazi occupation of France and of the rest of Europe. And these people wanted to get free, and they were organized, and they spread the message out through what was called the underground, the underground, the underground, the people found other Frenchmen or, you know, in the case of Americans, other Americans that had similar ideas, similar longings for freedom, similar faith in God. And they were resisting the tyranny of the godless Nazi eugenicist scientific medical tyranny that had descended upon France. You know, France was conquered under force of arms. Did you know France was conquered by the Germans? No. Great. 
That's why we're going to do this. Maybe you could send this out to all your fellow resistors that would like to be free. Because this happened in 1941. It's not very long ago. It's less than 100 years ago. It seems like a long time ago. But actually, for me, being born in the 50s, it's so much a part of my consciousness. It never leaves me. And one of the reasons it doesn't leave me is so many of my family members were actually killed under force of arms by the Nazis just because they were Jewish. They were Jewish. They were a group, an easily identifiable group that people feared and hated because they were different. You know, they, they didn't uh, fit in with the general people. They were a group that could be identified and reviled. And uh, my family members were killed, and I remember their names and how some of them died. And, you know, it's created post-traumatic stress disorder for me, which I've enjoyed my entire life. So those of you who have anxiety, hey, you know what? That's who we are. We're just full of anxiety. You know, people look at me, they say, oh, you're so intense. Could you take it down a notch? Hey, I've taken it down a lot of notches over the last 40 years. They should have seen me in my 20s and 30s when I was really wild in the streets. I want to thank Free People Radio. Free People Radio. Radio. Kind of like these radio waves that were going from the Free French to the French Underground. The Underground. Who spread the message that they might maintain their freedom. They took it seriously. The concept of spreading the word from one person to another. Finding the people that had the same kind of idea. Because they'd lost their freedom and they had to reorganize and resist Nazi tyranny, Nazi tyranny that had broken out all over Europe, in fact, all over the world, Nazi tyranny, Nazi tyranny. You know, people that don't believe in the Judeo-Christian God, they believed in eugenics, which is positive eugenics was by breeding humans to be a super race or a master race. And then they believed in, you know, the little bastard cousin, genocide, Kill the undesirables. We're going to talk about that today. Because, you know, this is, uh, this is not that long ago. It's almost like a current event. It's so recent in history, Tanner, it's current events. It's like it's happening right now today. That's how current this is. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it's, it's so current that, like, I'm still living in the aftermath of it. Well, but... I don't think it's the aftermath. Let's just say, I'm going to tell you something that you get when you're in a traditional culture. When you're in a traditional culture, as I am, the way I was raised, you get a different kind of sense of time. They give you kind of a timelessness. Because when you're in a 5,000, 6,000-year-old culture and there's events that happened thousands of years ago and you want to keep those events fresh in your mind, they encourage you to believe that when you think about those events, project yourself into the time period as if you were there yourself. I think that's a great skill to have. I think it's a great skill. And what is the difference between past, present, and future? Anyhow, I don't want to get too weird. You know, weird. I mean, look that word up. But just to wax philosophical for a second, past, present, and future, that's something to think about, the nature of time. Because the only time that ever really exists is right now. Right now. The past is gone. And then people comment on it. 
as if they understand it. Well, if you're not there, it's hard to understand. Things get, to use a racially tinged word, they get whitewashed. They get whitewashed, cleaned up. They clean things up. But Free People Radio is a transmission of a search for truth, and it's radio. I hope you get what I'm trying to say. TireGet.com, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com, our sponsor. Tires, you need them. You have to have them. You're going to buy them from somebody. When you buy them from TireGet, you're funding this transmission. And I'm trying to make this transmission as meaningful as I possibly can to you. Now, I know there's lots of people that are doing this work, and they have big audiences. Tucker is a great example. But we're a political podcast. We are, we are transmitting from one person to the next how we're going to make a change here in Minnesota. We're very specific. Now, of course, what works in Minnesota works in Tennessee. We know that. It's the same all over the country, but a little bit different. So when I'm transmitting this message, it's for everyone all over. But my line of country, what I'm working on, is in my neighborhood, because that's where I'm fighting for what I believe in, which is the well-being of my family, the well-being of my neighbors, the well-being of my community. Hey, that's what we're working on, governance and well-being. PrecinctStrategy.com. Precinct Strategy, it's a place that we can all go for a tutorial on how to get into the game of politics. Get off that bench. Get in the game. This is a transmission. It's not unlike that transmission that happened between the Free French and the French Underground. It's a transmission. It's the sharing of information. It's to organize us so that we can be effective in our political activities. You know, von Clausewitz was a German military historian, and he's very famous, and he had a very famous uh, line or, or idiom, and he said, war was politics by other means. Flip it around. War is politics by other means. Politics is war by other means. Let us stay political such that we might avoid war. Well, this is a very interesting uh, day for me. I'm extraordinarily complicated, as you can tell. And uh, I'm going to probably fail to keep up with my script today. I'm already running behind. Because I'm setting a predicate here about how we're going to move forward because Jesus spoke in parables because he didn't want to get clipped out. You know, we're going to have to be communicating with each other at a, in, a, in a very, very direct and sophisticated fashion from now on in. It's very important we spread the word. I hope you're receiving my transmission. <laughs> I hope you are. And I'm complicated today for many reasons, not the least of which is what happened in my 50th episode. But I'm going to tell you, I had a a guy who I'd known for many years. And this guy participated in a huge damage to my life. He damaged me. He damaged me. And I think he did it intentionally, my opinion. And uh, I got the word last night he died. He died. I've had two people in my life that have damaged me significantly, people that were close to me. I don't know what it is, jealousy, incompetence. I don't know. I don't know what motivates people when they 
damage things, when they break things. And I watch both of these people die. I think it's wise for all of us to try the best we can to live by those two really important golden rules, to love our God and to treat others as they want them to treat us. We can just stay in that simple framework. It's hard to go wrong. When you treat people shabbily and you hurt them, maybe you'll get away with it. Or maybe the person you hurt will watch you die. And I don't want to see people die. So I'm complicated because this guy really hurt me and he died ugly. And uh, that's making me quite uh, quite different today. Please please tolerate me. Maybe I'll pick up during the course of the, of the event today, course of the episode. But I, I don't feel very happy or very funny. I feel very serious. And I feel very serious about the fact that Jesus spoke in parables and the French resistance was an underground transmitting information one to the other. And I'm appealing to you, my listener, my viewer, this is a political podcast. Spread the podcast. If you go to my social media, Rumble or X, Twitter or Getter, and you go to the Professor Penn podcast, you'll find me there. There's shorts and clips, and those shorts and clips are going to start coming to your feed because you subscribe to me. Get more subscribers. Let's get the political part, the organizational part, out, out into the, into the people, into the people. Thank goodness we're still above ground. But let's proceed that we may keep it that way. Let's proceed that we might keep it that way. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, how things go wrong. Here's how things go right. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and the earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. I couldn't take that more seriously. I want to be more and more authentic with you. Uh, I appreciate you being here. And I'm giving over. I mean, I'm in the process of giving over. I'm in the process of giving over, of being part of the movement, of giving up my personal desires and my personal needs and recognizing that I have a role to play, whatever it is. You know, I look at these people like Tucker. It's 100, over 100 million views 
last night his interview with President Trump. I mean, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. There are people listening to this that are going to get off the bench and get involved in politics because of this. It's already happened. I've put many, many people into the political process here in Minnesota. And I don't know who you are that are listening to me today and that my words become the words you need to hear to pick up the phone tomorrow and call your local political unit. I don't know who you are. I'd like to know who you are. But I don't know the plan, and you don't know the plan. We don't know the significance of what we do. We all need to do whatever it is we can as we're called upon to do so. So I'm looking for the people that are called. I'm here I'm here to make a political statement to, to, to my community, but I'm looking for the people who are called, who feel the need, who for whatever reason have been prepared their entire lives to enter into the transmission of the information now at this special time in American history. How important that is. So let's talk about Minnesota politics just but for a, a few minutes. Minnesota politics. Minnesota, and if you're in Kentucky or Oregon, hey, it's same thing but a little different, so do your research there. Minnesota has what's called caucuses. Right now it's a caucus state, a caucus. What's a caucus? It's a gathering of your neighborhood. The whole state is divided into districts. They're called Senate districts. Each district has one state senator and two state legislators. I live in Senate District 45, which is in the western suburbs of the Twin Cities, Wyzetta, Minnetonka, that area, if you know the area. It's a beautiful area. My Senate district has one Democrat senator, Dr. Kelly Morrison, and two representatives, a Republican, Andrew Myers, and a Democrat, Patty Acomb. Those are the legislatures. 45A is Myers and 45B is Acomb. We're coming up on an election year. The election will be in November of 2024. Caucuses is when your neighborhood, your Senate district, is divided into neighborhoods called precincts. Precincts. Precinct strategy. There it goes. Make that connection. It's a great connection, right? Your neighborhood is a precinct. There are 38 precincts in Senate District 45. So if you're in 45, you're in a precinct that has a number, has a boundary, has a border. And coming up on the 27th of February, there will be caucuses. They will be held at your local high school or your local community center where all 38 of these precincts all these different neighborhoods in Senate District 45 or whatever your Senate District is or wherever you are in the country, some process like this is ongoing. Your neighbors will gather together in a room, a classroom, and you're going to participate in the game of politics. And when I say you're going to, I want to thank you right now for doing this. When they tell us that our civic duty is to vote every two years, that is a complete con. That is making us worthless, and our votes are not, there's just, I mean, come on. 
I don't even want to get into it. Let's leave that for later in the podcast. It, our, our civic duty is not just voting. We are intended to self-govern. The self-governing process means go to your precinct caucus on February 27th. Mark your calendar right now. Plan for it. Meet your neighbors. Go as a community. And when you're there, you'll be voting for your neighbors. Some of your neighbors will be elected as precinct delegates. You'll be called a delegate. That means you have a vote in what's going to come next, which is the Senate District Convention. When you go to that Senate District Convention and you're a precinct delegate, you will elect your Senate District delegates. And, oh, those delegates are important because they will go to the Congressional District, CD3, or whatever your Congressional District is, to your Congressional District Convention, where you will endorse candidates for the 2024 election. And you will go to your state convention, those same delegates, those same delegates will go to the state convention. Well, they will endorse statewide candidates, like for Senate. We're going to keep talking about this. The key is to go. I'm going to make sure as we talk about this more and more that everyone understands how this process works. You know, people come, I mean, I've done this before. People come, they're like deer, they're like shine deers in the headlight. They have no idea what's going on. And that's because they want it that way. They want you to come there dumb and leave dumber. That's what they want. I mean, they really do. And you know how I know that? Because the people that come, nobody even contacts them and says, thank you, American citizen, for participating. Could we meet you? Could you join our community? How can we help you? How can we serve you? See, that never happens. That never happens. Because guess what? Once you're a delegate and once you're coming to these activities and you have a seat at the table, guess what? Your politics matters. If you like Professor Penn, you can support me. Let's say you like some of the candidates that are going to run here in Minnesota like, hmm, let me think, who would that be? Oh, Royce White. I heard a rumor he's going to declare to run for Senate. You could actually become a delegate to your state convention, and you could vote for Royce to be the Republican-endorsed candidate in the 2024 senatorial election. Wow. Wouldn't that be incredible? We can do incredible things together. You know, those French people, they were getting these transmissions. They were living under the boot of tyranny. If they stuck their head up, they were very likely to be killed. Okay, there was a lot of pressure on these people. They were in hiding. What they did, they did at night. They got transmissions that were in code. How wonderful it is that we still have a constitution in a country and we can go and participate in a political process. Let us talk today about what happens when that process changes. Let us talk about what, it, what, what, what really happens. And it's a little bit of a parable, right? Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany. We're going to talk about Nazi Germany. In fact, we're going to be talking about the Nazis a lot. A lot. Why? If you go back and look at the previous podcast, I make a very good case that Nazism is a political party. It's a political party. That's what it was. It was a political party. It was a political strategy. And what 
were they trying to advance in that political strategy? Globalism, you know, they make a big deal that Hitler was a nationalist to throw shade on the nationalists like Professor Penn or on you because you're a nationalist. Perhaps you're a nationalist. No, no. Hitler was not a nationalist. By definition, when you try to take over the world, you're not a nationalist. He was an empire builder. He was a globalist. He was a globalist. He wanted a worldwide empire. And he really took over most of Europe, and it took an entire effort. It took a full military effort to defeat this man and his armies. It was very organized. But what was the Nazis really about? The Nazis were about science, medicine, eugenics, and creating a master race using science and eugenics and genocide to create a master race. They were Darwinists. They believed in the survival of the fittest. For example, they believed Jews, like Professor Penn, were of an inferior stock. So inferior, in fact, that we should be clipped out because, you know, hey, you don't want that, uh, you don't want that downward drag on the master race. So they killed six million Jews. They killed the gypsies. They killed the homosexuals. They killed the trade unionists. They killed Catholics. They killed people that had mental infirmities and physical infirmities. They believed in eugenics. They were eugenicists. They were Darwinists. Nazism, Nazism was humanism. Isn't that interesting? If you've been listening to my podcast, I hope the wheels are spinning around in your head going, oh, Professor Penn is speaking to us in a way that we can understand. There's a word, Gleichschultung, Gleichschultung. It's a German word. It means coordination or synchronization or harmony. Can you play this clip I've got here, Education in the Third Reich? You're going to find this very interesting. After Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany in 1933, the Nazis moved quickly to control education and the schools. They recognized that a new generation of supporters would be critical to their success. Responsibility for carrying out the educational goals of the Nazi party fell to the National Socialist Teachers League, the NSLB, the Ministry of Education, and the Hitler Youth. The NSLB was responsible for indoctrinating educators in the fundamentals of Nazi ideology. Teachers were required to attend training camps, and good teachers could be rewarded for their loyalty and dedication. Those who refused risked public humiliation or dismissal. Jewish teachers in Germany had no such choice as they were forced from their jobs in public schools regardless of their abilities and teaching accomplishments. This was followed several years later by the expulsion of Jewish students from German public schools. The Ministry of Education developed new courses based on what the Third Reich believed students should learn, especially race science. Simply put, 
Race science was the belief that individuals were organized into races, some inherently superior to others, and that Germans were members of a superior race destined to rule all of Europe. The Nazis viewed Jews as an inferior race that fed off the superior races like parasites and needed to be eliminated as parasites. In spite of the mandate from the Ministry of Education, teachers could use their own initiative to instruct their students in this new science. Methods ranged from subjecting students to measurements of their heads while their classmates watched to encouraging their students to harass and bully Jews, whether in their schools or, indeed, in their communities. Textbooks were revised to reflect Nazi ideology, from studies on racial science to propaganda targeted at young children. The Nazis also relied on the Hitler Youth to indoctrinate a new generation. I begin with the young, said Adolf Hitler. With them, I can make a new world. Although the Hitler Youth resembled youth clubs that promoted camaraderie and outdoor activities, the reality was more sinister. Marching, war games, and pro-Nazi speech and song made up a larger part of Hitler Youth activities than did camping or hiking. The primary purpose of the Hitler Youth was to win over hearts and minds, mold young people into passionate believers in the Nazi cause. Action over study, unquestioning obedience over independent thought, and loyalty to Adolf Hitler above all else. With this shift in Germany's educational aims, it could be suggested that educators, students, and parents had no choice but to conform to the new order. But teachers in the Third Reich did make choices, whether because or in spite of the pressures they were now facing. At war's end in 1945, with the Third Reich overthrown and Germany under Allied occupation, the country's educational system was in shambles. Denazifying Germany's schools took years to accomplish. And as with other citizens of post-war Germany, those who had been teachers and students during the 12 years of Nazi rule struggled with the burden of each choice they had made, even when that choice was to do nothing at all. Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy that? That was terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> it was just terrifying to see all the similarities that I oh, like. Oh, careful, look careful. <laughs> careful. Slow <clears throat> down. Slow your roll there, yeah, Tanner. You're good. <laughs> but see, Tanner, we're slowing his roll. Because, you know, there was a comment in there that the process of denazification took a long time. Oh, it's taking a very long time. It's taking a very long time because what were the Nazis doing? They were promoting science, the science of eugenics, the science of Darwinism. You know, there's many of you that think these you know, Nazis were Christians. No, they were not. They were very anti-Christian, 
particularly anti-Catholic. You know, the Protestant movement started there in Germany, so they were very anti-Catholic, which was, you know, the closest of the Christian religions to that vile Jewish thing that they thought was parasitic. You know, you can subtract the name Jew or the word Jew out of that propaganda. Pop anything in that place you'd like to put in there. Put any group into that film. Leave Jew out. Put in something else. Something else that pops to mind. A group that's not complying with the power. Put that group in there and run the, run the short again. Run the clip again. And what you're going to see is this kind of education applies timelessly. Timelessly. I'm sure in Pharaoh's Egypt, they had a very similar way of developing the next generation of Egyptian leaders. It's nothing new about this, nothing new under the sun. We've just been getting better and better at it because of technology. You know, think about this. A nuclear ICBM missile that has the power to kill tens of millions of people, one missile, right? It's just a rock. It's just like me throwing a rock at you and hitting the head and killing you, right? It's just a very sophisticated rock. The idea hasn't changed. The technology is improving. Gleichschultung is a German term applied to the Nazification of Germany, not the denazification. That's a very interesting process. The Nazification is also interesting. The Nazis, they didn't seize power in 1933. They were elected by the German people. Let's make this very clear. The German people elected the Nazis because they felt their survival was threatened economically and in terms of the integrity of their country. They had been defeated. The Germans had been defeated in World War I, and very onerous terms had been imposed upon the German people, and there was a lot of political unrest because the economy sucked, and there was a lot of change and warp and woof, and, uh, you know, guess what? They elected them. You know, it'd be like the American people elected a Nazi. Seems kind of incongruous, right? What's the difference between the Germans and the Americans? Well, we think a lot, right? We're told, hey, it's a big difference. But these people had culture. They had music. They had art. They had theater. They had movies. They had a modern industrial society, and they elected the Nazis to rule the country. And guess what the Nazis did when they got into power? Well, they, they implemented this coordination, the uh, Gleichschultung. It's a German word that means, you know, harmony or synchronicity or coordination. They wanted the whole society to run in a coordinated fashion, a Nazi fashion. So the first thing they did is they created a single party, a uni party. They created a single party, a uni party. They created a single party, a uni party. That was one of their primary goals, the creation of a single-party state entirely under Nazi control. And what was Nazi control? The scientific method, eugenics, and the creation of a master race, you know, like a high-technology race, a race that had exceptional skills. You know, this is very interesting, isn't it? Interesting. Seems like a long—does this seem like a long time ago? doesn't seem that long ago, does it, suddenly? No. No. No, it doesn't. 
Hitler was the chancellor. He became the Fuhrer, the supreme leader. You know, when he when he went in there, Germany was a multi-party state. They had all kinds of parties. And then when he got in power, he created a uni party. One party, a uni party. And right after he got into power, their Congress, it was called the Reichstag, it burned to the ground. Now there's a lot of... Uh, historical warp and woof about how that happened. Many people consider it to be a false flag. In other words, the Nazis burned down their own Congress, the Reichstag. The Reichstag means Congress in German, Reichstag. The Reichstag. They blamed it on the Communist Party, and they immediately passed measures called the Reichstag Fire Decree. The measure suspended the protection for civil rights free speech, and due process that were guaranteed to the German people in the Constitution. In other words, free speech disappeared. Hey, guess what? People got deplatformed. They couldn't talk. If they talked, they could get picked up and killed. Isn't that interesting? They were not allowed to speak freely. They couldn't assemble. They couldn't have due process, you know, because there was an emergency. Oh, the, the Congress burned down. There was an insurrection. Something happened that was terrible. So, you know, the German people accepted the suspension of their civil liberties because there was a, an emergency, an emergency. In fact, they wanted their civil liberties suspended because, you know, there was a lot of chaos. On March 24th, 1933, the German Congress, the, you know, it was, it was at the Reichstag, it was their political, the elected leaders of the German people, passed a legislation that was called the Enabling Act. In other words, we the people, excuse me, the German people, excuse me, the German we the people, their elected leaders, their representatives, who had already given up a multi-party system and accepted a uniparty, that would be the Nazi party, passed another legislation called the Enabling Act. Well, this is really fun. The act gave the Reich Chancellor, that would be the president, the president, Herr Hitler, the ability to pass laws without consulting the elected officials in the Reichstag. He had the power to bypass the Congress, kind of like an executive order. It's like an executive order, and there was no oversight. He was able to do so even if those laws conflicted with the German Constitution. This effort effectively ended parliamentary democracy in Germany. Hitler had succeeded in securing control of the national government. He passed two additional laws to reconstitute state-level governments under Nazi control. These laws dissolved existing state governments, like California went away, Minnesota went away, hell, Texas went away, Florida went away, Tennessee went away. I mean, you know, because they had to get all these states that were in Germany under the Nazi control. So they just dissolved the state governments. And the people voted for this. People thought it was a great idea. People loved it. The people actually had been ready to give up their self-governance because they were afraid. They were afraid. They wanted, they, wanted, they wanted to be led. They wanted to be ruled. They needed a leader. On April 7th, the German government of that same year, 1933, the German government issued the law for the restoration 
of the professional civil service. Doesn't that sound nice? They restored the civil service. Sounds great, doesn't it? They restored it. They restored it. You know, kind of like the debt ceiling bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a very nice-sounding bill, uh, but let me tell you what it actually did. Hitler issued the law for the restoration of the professional civil service on April 7, 1933. The measure dismissed all Jews and political opponents of the Nazis from civil service. It covered every employee at every level of government administration. It applied to numerous other positions not generally or traditionally considered part of the civil service. For example, this bill covered judges. Oh, I guess that took care of uh, the judicial system, didn't it? Teachers, university professors. That would be like every university professor had to be a Nazi or like every university professor had to be a liberal or they couldn't get tenure. Boy, I think the system really evolved, didn't it? Now the professors have a say in who gets to be a professor. They don't have to listen to the Nazis. They've taken it over for themselves. They get to say who gets to be a tenured professor. They get to say who passes muster. Isn't that great? Our system is so much better now. Isn't it better? You know, I have a daughter at Columbia University. There's such a diversity of opinion there. It's fantastic. I mean, there's only a handful of liberals and leftists. There's so many conservatives on that campus and people that believe in God. It's such a multicultural institution. It's fantastic. I'm so proud that she's there. Oh, and the lawyers were in on this. You know, hey, for my friend Thomas the Good, we just had an argument. The lawyers in this restoration of the professional civil service, the Nazi party got to say who could practice law. I guess that reduced conflict, didn't it? Everybody agreed. They had unity. Unity, how wonderful. Isn't unity a wonderful thing when everybody agrees on the same idea? And what was the idea? Science, medicine, applied in a process of using eugenics and genocide to generate a master race. A master race, like a technologically superior group of people, a genetically superior group of people, people that were able to influence the human genetics to create a master race. Where have I heard this recently? I've heard this. Must be different. It has to be different. This is America. Can't be the same as Nazi Germany. It can't, it can't be the same. I'm sure you're confident in that, aren't you? On July 14th, 1933, the Nazis passed a law against founding any new political parties. That was it. They had the uni party, and nobody else could get in. Isn't that cool? The National Socialist German Workers' Party is the only party in Germany, it was declared. Membership in other political parties, such as the Social Democrat Party or the Communist Party, became illegal. Illegal. Members of any other parties, oh, they were deplatformed and arrested. Within six months, Hitler and the Nazi Party, six months, this is a big country with tens of millions of people, a modern country with an industrial base, classical music, art, jazz, movies, radio, 
a modern country in a period of six months became fully a uniparty country, a uniparty. Everybody had the same idea. It didn't matter what radio station you turned on. I mean, they had lots of different options, but everybody said the same thing. All you heard was one narrative. You couldn't get another narrative. And the people that dissented were deplatformed. They couldn't get their word out. You know, they tried to get their word out, and all of a sudden, they couldn't get their word out. And if they tried really hard to get their word out, you know what happened? Some guys showed up in some really baller uniforms that were designed by Hugo Boss of design fame. I mean, you know, those, those Gestapo uniforms, they're fly. Come on, let's face the fact. If you're going to be let off to be killed, I mean, these people had style. Style! You know, they're stylish. We still, to this day, kind of appreciate the style of the Gestapo. All labor unions. Hey, for those of us in labor unions, listen to this one. You're in the USW, the AFL-CIO, and you're noticing, hey, you know, because of the environmental thing, you know, the industrial unions are kind of going downhill. Absolute power was not enough. The Nazi Party sought complete control over the economic, social, and cultural life in Germany as well. All labor unions were abolished in May 1933, and they were replaced by the DAF, or German Labor Front. The DAF created a single, overarching labor union. Essentially, all German workers and employees in every economic sector belong to the DAF. Unbelievable. Isn't that great? Everybody was in the union. It's like in communist China. There's no labor unions there either, but the workers get a star on the flag. Isn't that special? They get a star... Hey, you get a star on the flag. Isn't that cool? You know, you're working your job. You're in one union, one worldwide union, right? One German union, one union, and you get a star on the flag. Do you feel honored? I mean, I, I think that's really honorable. You know, I'm picking up. This is getting funny to me. Bleep that out for me, would you? Unnecessary. And then let's just see how far these people went teaching this new order this new they called it the new world order do you know they called this the new world order they did believe it or not we didn't think that up in modern era well it's just all we got is the present the new world order can you play this thing two minutes and 48 seconds on the hitler youth this is really going to fire you up take a look at this one the ideal child raised by proud Nazi parents was of quite another mold. For one thing, young men and young women had different parts to play. As a leader of the Girls League put it, Men and women, boys and girls, must carry out their duty according to their station. Boys we raise as political soldiers, and girls as the comrades of these political soldiers. We teach them to be wives and mothers, and to breed the next generation. That's all. Kinder, Kercher, Kuka. Children, church, and kitchen. Girls in Nazi Germany weren't encouraged to have ambitions beyond the home. In the Girls' League, they learned cooking, making beds, childcare. Their clothes and hair copied old peasant styles. No cigarettes, no makeup. 
A perm could be punished by shaving the head. Boys, meanwhile, were being bred for war. These scenes record life on a typical Hitler Youth summer camp. The camps were the high point of the Hitler Youth calendar, and they were much loved. They gave poor children the chance of a holiday, sometimes for the first time. They mixed rich and poor together. They introduced city kids to the countryside. But their main function was basic military training. We learned how to throw hand grenades, how to dig trenches. Then they take us on long, hard marches to toughen us up. If anyone fell, they'd shout till they wobbled onto their feet again. They would divide us into two groups, the Blues and the Reds. One group to defend a position, the other to attack it. They whistle and then contact. Noise, bloody noses, twisted arms, shrieks of pain. In the beginning, I hated it all, but I got used to it. And I think what it did was it developed the aggression we would all need to help Germany fight a war. Oh, great. That's pretty sophisticated. You know, this is so yesterday, technologically speaking. Now, you don't have to go to that kind of length. You just have to get a smartphone. And you get everything you need to be armed to proceed as you're supposed to. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's fantastic, isn't it? We would make some terrible soldiers, though, because the one thing it misses is actual training. Well, <laughs> you know, the nature of what a soldier is changes over time because the times make the warrior. This was a different, this is a different time. This was a different time when these people were training to be like this. They didn't have smartphones and ICBMs and all of the issues that we confront today. This is a different time. It was a kind of a kind of a quaint time. Quaint time. Eighty-eight million people died. You know, that could go down as kind of a mere bagatelle, as my father used to say. A mere bagatelle if uh, you know, we get a nuclear war going here. But let's let's just stay in this mode with the Nazis. Because they're we're not done. You know, they, there's culture, right? People play violin, people play piano, people play jazz, people play all kinds of cultural. They paint, they, they're in plays, they're making movies. Oh, they, they started their own uh, uh, program there, too. It was called the Reich Culture Chamber. It was created by Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels in 1933, September. It coordinated literature, music, theater, radio, film, the fine arts, and the press. And the press, that would be like, oh, I don't know our social media platforms, the press, because that's the social media platforms today. So, you know, that was what it was, the press. They took control of it. Only artists and writers belonging that were on the in crowd could continue in their professions. Everybody else got deplatformed. If you weren't in the in crowd, if you didn't agree in the Nazi ideology, which what, what was that ideology? Science, 
applied for eugenics and genocide to create a master race, a master race of rulers. If you, if you weren't supporting that, you got deplatformed. Deplatformed. And even leisure time, the Nazis got into. I mean, come on. They had a thing called Strength Through Joy. This program was uh, a division of the German Labor Front. Strength Through Joy offered subsidized tourism packages, music lessons, art classes, fitness opportunities, and sponsored theater and concert tickets. Isn't that fantastic? It's kind of like early childhood education for Nazis. Like if was in this organization in a year, she could go to a Nazi, a Nazi-sponsored daycare. Is she in daycare? Yeah. If she was in Nazi Germany, she would be getting a Nazi education in her daycare. Is that incredible? That the people that were teaching the children all had the same beliefs or they couldn't get the job. If they didn't agree with the Nazi ideology, they didn't get to work. So if your was alive in 1933, the daycare where you sent her would be Nazi. Isn't that incredible? It's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? It's terrifying. 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 Because, of course, who teaches the children and what they teach them determines the future of a society. That and demographics. Two things. There's only two things. What your kids get taught and how many kids you have. The rest of it's just entertainment. Well, let's let's talk about who made this whole thing go down. Okay? Let's let's just talk about who was the driver of this change. Because of course, this is transformational change, like Obama called it. Transformational change. I mean, they were taking a society and transforming it into something completely new, a new world order. This was the new world order. Well, who's going to drive that kind of change? I mean, it's not going to be a bus driver. And I, if you're a bus driver, I don't mean to disrespect. I don't mean any disrespect. That's a great job, and you're getting paid, and you're working. And if you're working for a city like Minneapolis, you're probably making over hundred grand a year driving buses. So it's not only is it a job, it's a good gig. But the power in a society, the people that are going to drive change, are guess who? It's the professionals. They educated the teachers, the lawyers, the architects, the priests or the clergy, and guess who's the special group? The doctors. You know, what drove the change in Germany, how they made the whole thing go wrong, make, make, the, make this coordination go around? Guess who it was? It was the doctors and the lawyers. That's how they Nazified Germany, the doctors and the lawyers. And here's how they did it. It's very interesting. The doctors, scientists after all, scientists that believed in science. Because after all, if you're a doctor, you're a scientist who believes in science. Remember, trust the science. Trust the science. Have faith in the science. Have faith in the science. 
You must have faith in the science, or there must be something wrong with you. You're not stupid, are you? You know, if you don't have faith in science, you have faith in Christ. There's something wrong with you. You're going to have to lose your job. I mean, it was the Nazification of the country. So they had lawyers that wrote laws that made deplatforming people legal. And they had doctors that made medical judgments about who should be deplatformed. Oh, yes, they actually had a ministry that traced people's ancestry to make sure that their genetics were pure enough that they would be part of the Aryan race. Like, for example, let's say you had a grandfather that was Jewish. Oh, grandkid, mm, sorry, the sins of the parents are visited onto the children, even onto the third generation. Hey, the Nazis agreed. They took you with one grandparent who was Jewish, and you know what they did with you? They killed you to make sure that your genetics didn't get passed on. And they had all these different categories of people, these doctors. And, you know, this was kind of a worldwide phenomenon. They got really big into abortion in Germany. Yeah, there was a big deal in abortion. They wanted to abort every child that was not an Aryan child. Isn't that interesting? Only Aryan babies were allowed to come to full term. If you were pregnant and they knew about it and you weren't in the in crowd, a doctor came and forcibly aborted your fetus for the good of the society, after all. I mean, they had, you have to give up that right to procreate for the good of the German people. It seems very reasonable to me. Very reasonable. I mean, my gosh, you don't have the same Nazi ideas. You're not an Aryan. And you think you get to populate my country with your disgusting views? Come on, that's not reasonable. You're totally unreasonable. You know what? We're going to start by killing your children. You know, we're going to get around to killing you later. And the Nazi doctors did. They identified whole groups of people that had mental impairments, physical impairments, and they had a great practice of euthanasia there. They were euthanasists. They were abortionists. That's what the Nazi doctors did. And then what did they do? Oh, they worked with the German military to practice the art of genocide. And they took it to an art. I mean, this was an art. When you kill that many people in that short period of time, hey, you're an artist. So the Nazi doctors and the Nazi lawyers, well, let's not call them Nazis. Let's call them Germans. Let's not label them. Oh, no, wait a second. Every one of them to have a job as a lawyer or as a doctor had to join the Nazi party. Otherwise, they couldn't practice medicine or practice law. They had to be part of the party. That meant they had to believe in a technologically superior race of people, a people that use technology and science to create a higher level of genetics, a master race. Isn't that interesting? I, you know, I, I, somehow I feel like I've, I've heard this before. I've heard it outside. Of, maybe not. Maybe it's just German. Maybe I'm getting goofy. I'm sorry. It must just be Nazi Germany. I mean, that never happened in China. It never happened in, oh, I don't know, Cambodia. Uh, I mean, it, it's just an anomaly. Please excuse me. I'm, 
I'm losing it. Let's take a look at some of these Nazi docs. Let's start out with the angel of death, the most famous. He escaped, Dr. Mengele. At 91 years old, Alina Dabrowska is still consumed by the horror of what happened to her here. It is why she has brought her granddaughter, Eva, for the first time. It is why she wanted to talk to us about her memories. And it is why, for 50 years, she could never set foot in this place. Once I tried to, uh, to come here with my children and I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. In these buildings, Alina was a victim of the cruel experiments carried out by this man, Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele, known as the Angel of Death. For the first time, Alina is shown some of the tools used by Mengele for his cruel experiments, sterilizations, crude transplants, and here, even the typhus she was injected with as a guinea pig to test medicines. I had hallucination. I got a very high fever, fever. It's never in my life. Earlier and afterwards, I had no such a high fever. And you think you, you thought you were going to die? Yes. At nearby Block 10, where many of the experiments took place, she could not bring herself to cross the threshold. I am very glad that we are here, not, not going further. And who can blame her? This remains an eerie, sickening place of dark corridors and rooms with dreadful secrets. In one, a dissection table. What grotesque atrocities were carried out by doctors here in the name of medical research? I don't think they are normal men. I can't find a proper English word for this. They're bestia, so beast. beast. Before she left, she shows me a mark on her arm. It is her prison number, 44165, fading but with her for life. Just like the memories of a place she wants her granddaughter and the world never to forget. Oh boy. Well, um, my father lived through this period. It was his family, close family members that were killed at Auschwitz and Treblinka and Belsen, and he knew these people by name. Some of them he knew personally. And uh, he was so overwhelmed by this experience that uh, even though he had been raised to be a rabbi, he uh, gave up his faith because he couldn't square the circle. I mean, how can a loving God permit this kind of genocide? So... He gave up on the God idea, and uh, he went and became a uh, secular humanist himself, a logical positivist. He used to call himself a logical positivist, a man of science. And my father believed that um, human beings could develop an ethic and a personal code of responsibility that we would follow just as human beings because, you know, hey, come on, come on. There's just a way to be with each other, right? And he brought his religious training into that secular worldview, that humanist worldview, he, he wasn't a eugenicist. I mean, you know, he, he worked his entire professional career to expose this kind of Nazi eugenics, even going back and looking at what its root was. And what was its root? Darwinism. 
before Charles Darwin and the origin of species, the creation myth of our world was Genesis of the Old Testament. That was our creation myth in Western culture. And somehow the crown was able to overthrow that. Not somehow. A lot of money. A lot of money and generating a lot of academics who spread out all over the world and spread this competing creation myth of Darwinism. And my father was the first academic that I'm aware of that identified the relationship between Nazism and Darwinism. How the Nazis really were the expression, Nazism as a political party, was the operationalization of the Darwinist worldview. Because after all, if there's a survival of the fittest, if there's a struggle to survive, why not enhance your chances in the lottery? I mean, if there's no God, right? Why not give yourself a genetic age, edge? Why not evolve the human genome? Why not evolve biotechnology? Why not evolve our ability to compute and, compu and computational power? Why not use science to make a higher level of humanity? That's what Nazism was. And my father, my father stood on a, on a street corner screaming that the pillars of the British intellectual tradition, that would be Malthus and Darwin and Spencer and Galton, were radical racists, anti-Semites. And he was pilloried for that. In fact, in 1971, he was fired. He was fired from his job at the university because he was challenging the orthodoxy in the university setting of the origin of the species and all the people that believed in it, that they were actually, you know, hanging their hat on a eugenicist, racist ideology. They fired him. Well, he fought very hard and he got his job back. But he was the first person, and I realize as I sit here with you how much influence his work has had upon me and how much influence his work has had upon the world. A lot of influence. Uh, I don't think he would be completely happy with the way things uh, developed over a 50 or 60 or 70 year period because we don't want you to have an idea. It's no longer your idea. It's taken. This is not like business where you can trademark and patent something. An idea, an intellectual idea, a philosophical idea, we're doing it right now, just like that French underground, spreading out the idea. Who are the Nazis? Where are the Nazis? Even better, where are the Nazis? Where do the Nazis go? And my father was not willing to take that step because he lived in the post-war period, and it appeared like, hey, it's good, we won. We won the war. We won. Nazis are defeated. Uh, no. My dad missed it on that part because he was dependent on people to wear swastikas to be Nazis. But remember, the Nazi is a political animal, part of a political party, Nazism, that is pursuing a political goal, and that's eugenics. They don't have to wear swastikas, do they? I mean, it would be way better not to identify yourself, to appear in a business suit at a forum and discuss improving the well-being of the world's people. Isn't that great? Because, you know, that line between well-being, I mean, really, that's the, the line. 
How are you going to improve human well-being? Through faith or through science? Hey, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. That's where the rubber hits the road. Let's play this thing about the Nazi docs at Nuremberg. Let's just dwell in there for a second, see where this thing led to. Der zweite Hauptangeklagte ist Siegfried Handloser, früherer Generaloberstabsarzt und Chef des Wehrmachtssanitätswesens. Alle 23 Angeklagten This is in German because this is propaganda for the newly conquered German people. Die einzige Frau unter den Angeklagten Hertha Oberhauser. This is what the German people saw in 1946 when their doctors went on trial for mass murder. All of the defendants herein, acting in concert with others for whose acts the defendants are responsible, unlawfully, willfully, and knowingly participated as leaders, organizers, in the course of which experiments the defendants committed the murders, brutalities, cruelties, tortures, atrocities, and other inhumane acts more fully described in counts two and three of this indictment. In or about December 1943 and in or about October 1944, experiments were conducted at the Buchenwald concentration camp to investigate the effect of various poisons upon human beings. The poisons were secretly administered to experimental subjects in their food. <coughs> From about November 1943 to about January 1944, experiments were conducted at the Buchenwald concentration camp to test the effect of various pharmaceutical preparations on phosphorus burns. These burns were inflicted on experimental subjects with phosphorus matter taken from incendiary bombs and caused severe pain, suffering, and serious bodily injury. 112 Jews were selected for the purpose of completing a skeleton collection for the Reich University of Strasbourg. Their photographs and anthropological measurements were taken. Then they were killed. Thereafter, comparison tests, anatomical research, studies regarding race, pathological features of the body, form and size of the brain, and other tests were made. The bodies were sent to Strasbourg and defleshed. The execution of the so-called euthanasia program of the German Reich, in the course of which the defendants herein murdered hundreds of thousands of human beings, including nationals of German-occupied countries. This program involved the systematic and secret execution of the aged, insane, and curably ill of deformed children and other persons by gas, lethal injections, and divers other means in nursing homes, hospitals, and asylums. Such persons were, were regarded as, ruth, as useless eaters and a burden on the German war machine. The relatives of these victims were informed that they died from natural causes, such as heart failure. German doctors involved in the euthanasia program were also sent to the eastern occupied countries to assist in the mass extermination Can of Jews. you Jews. stop it? You know, there's a kind of an interesting thing there. People died in nursing homes and hospitals, and their family members were informed that they died of natural causes like heart problems, like myocarditis, for example. Isn't that interesting? Wow, these Nazis were good at what they were doing. And what's really interesting about it is, had the Nazi regime not been defeated, this was the coin of the realm. People just accepted this as that's the way it is. Hey, that's the way it is. 
I mean, if I go to my doctor and he tells me to do something, of course I'm going to do it because he's concerned about my well-being. I trust my doctor. I trust my lawyer. I mean, they're professionals after all. We're all unified. We have a unity, a unity. We're all unified. Isn't that wonderful? So had the Nazis not been defeated by the Russians, it was the Russians who really did the work on this. I mean, the, Amer the Americans came in later and invaded Italy and then invaded Normandy, and they delayed the invasion in the hopes, this was Churchill's plan, that the Russians would be crushed in the battle with the Germans. Hey, you know what? It's a very, compli very complex when people get entangled in foreign issues. But the Russians would not be defeated by the Germans. One in seven Russians died. One in seven. One in seven. It's pretty shitty odds, isn't it? Bleep. Okay. Sorry. It's not good odds. Tanner's going to cover it up. Because, you know, I don't want to swear because we're unified. We don't swear. We don't swear on the public channels. Of course not. And, of course, I'm a Jew talking about Nazism. Of course a Jew has a right to talk about Nazism, don't I? I thought the whole point of the New World Order after World War II, as it evolved into the post-World War II Democrat liberal order, was to ensure that we'd never have a resurgence of Nazism or another world war to protect the lives of the people. So I think as a Jewish man, I have every right to comment on this issue, and I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. I hope you're hearing me. If you have ears to hear, you're hearing me. The Nazi doctor's trial. Officially, the United States of America versus Carl Brandt, we're going to talk about in a second. Interesting guy. Oh, this guy's a rock star. Was the first of 12 trials for war crimes of high-ranking German officials and industrialists that the United States authorities, in other words, the people that took over under force of arms, held in their occupation zone in Nuremberg, Germany, after the end of World War II. These trials were held before U.S. military tribunals and not before the International Military Tribunal, but took place in the same rooms at the Palace of Justice. The trials were collectively known as the subsequent Nuremberg Trials. These are the doctors. 20 of the 23 defendants were medical doctors and were accused of having been involved in human experimentation and mass murder under the guise of euthanasia. That's mass murder. This was 1946. It was a quaint time. These doctors were accused of killing human beings under the guise of euthanasia. The indictments were filed on the 25th of October, 1946. Of the 23 defendants, seven were acquitted because, you know, you can't have justice and, you let, you know, you got to let some people go. Like, give us Barabbas. you got to let some people go. Otherwise, it looks like the fix is in, right? <clears throat> seven people got acquitted. Seven received death sentences. Isn't that interesting and balanced out? Just perfect. Of course, the trial was completely impartial. The remainder received prison sentences ranging from 10 years to life imprisonment. Unbelievable. Every doctor in Germany joined the Nazi party. Every single doctor, or they couldn't practice medicine. But they tried 20 of them, right? 20 of them, 20. Of course, that was the only 20 that were 
practicing abortion or euthanasia, right? The other tens of thousands of doctors weren't engaged in this. I'm sure they weren't. I mean, they were in the Nazi party. They were practicing Nazi medicine. But 20 people were convicted, and that took care of the problem. Now, those other doctors took a lifetime loyalty oath to the Chancellor, the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, but they didn't, you know, because, of course, in a society, you must have doctors and lawyers. So they got to keep their jobs in show business and continue to practice medicine. And, uh, you know, it was like uh, a miracle. On one day they were Nazis, and the next day they were not. I'm sure that's the way it went down in every single case. Because, of course, they rejected Nazism. They didn't want to be involved in it from the start. I'm sure of it. They didn't believe in it. You know, it's kind of like the people that, um, well, there's just many beliefs people hold that are not necessarily true. And they hold those beliefs until they don't. And then the beliefs just go away, right? Like I'm Jewish, and then one day I'm Christian, and all my Jewish thinking just goes away overnight. Just gone. Sure. You know, Jesus spoke in parables because he didn't want to go to jail and get killed. Here's the indictments. It's very interesting. Conspiracy to commit war crimes and crimes against humanity. What are the war crimes? Performing medical experiments, like an experimental medicine, without the subject's consent, like it was mandatory, on prisoners of war and civilians, in the course of which experiments the defendants committed murders, brutalities, cruelties, tortures, atrocities, and other inhumane acts, also planning and performing the mass murder of prisoners of war and the civilians of occupied countries. They stigmatized the aged, the insane, the incurably ill, the deformed, and so on. They killed them by gas, by lethal injection, and by diverse other means in nursing homes, in hospitals, and in asylums during what was called the euthanasia program and participating in the mass murder of concentration camp inmates. It was kind of a slippery slope. One day abortion and euthanasia, the next day concentration camps. The Nazi doctors, it's just the way it, and I'm not making any comment about abortion here in 2023. I'm talking about what happened during the Nazi period because it's so different than what's going on now. So different. Crimes against humanity. Oh, membership in a criminal organization like the Uni Party. You know, they, they killed these people for being involved in part of the Uni Party called the SS. It was a particularly virulent subgroup, the Waffen SS. We're going to talk about a lot of these doctors. I just want to talk about one of them today. Carl Brandt. This guy was a rock star. He was the personal physician to Adolf Hitler. He was a Gruppenführer in the SS and a general lieutenant in the Waffen-SS. I mean, this guy was in the secret society. He was in the in club. I wish I could show you his face. Maybe we'll do it next time. The guy was good looking. Reich, he was the Reich Commissioner for Health and Sanitation, and he was on the Reich Research Council. Oh, I wonder what they were researching. 
I wonder what scientific research they were all about. His sentence was death by hanging, and they hung him on the 2nd of June, 1948. Hung him from a rope. He was an example, a sacrificial lamb, so to speak. I don't know that his ideas and his beliefs were any more virulent than the doctor practicing out in the small town that got off on this deal, who was also doing the same stuff. But this guy, he took the heat because he was Herr Hitler's personal physician. I want to just tell you a little bit about this guy in closing, just to let you know how similar these people are, how their lives are every day. Like you and me. Now, first of all, to become a doctor, he took the Hippocratic Oath. You know what the oath is? Here's the oath. I shall do by my patients as I would be done by me, as I would have done to me. In other words, it's a Christian oath, right? I shall do by my patients as I would be done by. Shall obtain consultation whenever I or they desire. Shall include my patients to the extent they wish in all important decisions. And shall minimize suffering whenever a cure cannot be obtained, understanding that a dignified death is an important goal of everyone's life. You know, that was the oath he took to become a doctor. Carl Brandt, born in January 8th, 2000, 1904, excuse me, excuse me, 1904. We wouldn't want to make him a current doctor. That was a Freudian slip. Please excuse me. He was the personal physician to German dictator Adolf Hitler. He had one child. He was married to a champion swimmer, a woman named Anna Reborn. Reborn, interesting name, isn't it? He was trained in surgery. He joined the Nazi party voluntarily in 1932 and became Adolf Hitler's personal doctor in 34. He was a member of the inner circle. He liked to chum around with Adolf. He was a palsy, which I understand that. I'm good friends with my doctor, and I'm good friends with my lawyer. I mean, if you're a person that's got some skills, you want to have your professionals close to you. My lawyer is one of my best friends. My doctor was one of my best friends, but unfortunately, he died of COVID. How strange is that? Very good friend of mine. Brandt was indicted in 46. We, we, we learned about his hanging. His career was fantastic in Nazi Germany. He was a shooting star. He was uh, the leader of the Action T4 Euthanasia Program. Doesn't sound, that sound great, the T4 Euthanasia Program? That sounds so rockish. The T4 Program. They even had an act, the T4 Program. That sounds cool. He dressed great. He was in the Waffen-SS. He had those great Hugo Boss uniforms wherever he went. Uh, this guy was fantastic. Medical ethics. This is the part I want to get to. Brandt's medical ethics particularly regarding euthanasia, were influenced by Alfred Hoke. You can look him up. That's H-O-C-H-E, another interesting character. Like many, like many, like all, because they were Nazi doctors, they're just being nice on Wikipedia. Like many other German doctors of the period, Brandt came to believe that the health of society as a whole should take precedence over that of its individual members. Isn't that nice? Unity, the concept of unity. You know, for all my Republican Party cohorts that are always screaming for unity, they had it in Nazi Germany. They had fantastic unity. Everybody agreed, or they were killed. Because society was viewed as an organism, oh, there we go, there's Spencer. 
Spencer, Survival of the Fittest, because the society was viewed as an organism that had to be cured, its weakest, most invalid, and incurable members were only parts that should be removed, like the Jews. Such hapless creatures should therefore be granted a merciful death. In addition to these considerations, Brandt's explanation at his trial for his criminal activities, particularly ordering experimentation on human beings, you know, experimental drugs, experimental procedures, experimentation, it's very important for science. Let's not worry about the individual suffering of some poor bastard that has a problem. Hey, this is about science now. Science. Any personal code of this is this is him. Any personal code of ethics must give way to the total character of the war or the state. Like the war. The war, like a war, like uh, you know, we all have to be motivated today about certain things that it's a war. Like, boy, if we don't make really quick changes to the way our society is ordered, the planet's going to burn up. We're going to have climate change. It's a war on climate change. We have, you know, these are these are themes that are very important when society has to be motivated in total to survive. It's incredible. Brandt and Hitler himself discussed multiple killing techniques that they could use in the euthanasia program during which Hitler asked Brandt, which is the most humane way? Hey, we don't think about Adolf Hitler like that. Brandt suggested the use of carbon monoxide, to which Hitler gave his personal approval. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? It's such a humane way to die. You know, I really, I really am impressed by this. You're killed very humanely by guys in nice costumes. Fantastic. Hitler instructed Brandt to contact other physicians because, you know, it's a small club, and begin to coordinate the mass killings. Well, Brandt got convicted of this because, you know, if you don't win the day, there's payback. And payback came to Brother Brandt. And here's what he said as they put the noose on his neck. It is no shame to stand upon the scaffold. This is nothing but political revenge. I have served my fatherland as others before me. He refused to stop talking. They put a hood over his head, and they hung him, and he died. I want to thank you for joining me. I want to thank you for uh, being able to hear what I'm saying. I want to thank you for going into this with me at a depth that is most uncomfortable. I wish you well-being. And well-being in the context of this kind of genocide takes skill. And we want to develop that skill. So take a walk. Look at the trees. Get out in the heat. Follow your doctor's orders. Follow your doctor's recommendations, right? Got to follow our doctor's orders. But go out and get a, a walk. Have healthy food. And I wish you well-being. I look forward to see you soon again. Tanner, let's just go out. There's a 9 minute and 39 piece on the Nazi doctor trial. We're going to just run that out. For those of you that would like to suffer a little bit more tonight, we're not going to go out with Bach or Beethoven or Brahms. We're going to go out with the other side of that culture, genocide. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you soon again. Military Tribunal 1. Nuremberg, November 21st, 1946. Military Tribunal Number 1.
United States of America versus Carl Brandt and others, better known as the medical case. Answer the questions which I shall propound to him. Is your name Werther Oberhoser? Yes, Have you received and have you had an opportunity to read the indictment filed against you? Yes, Have you entered your plea of not guilty to this indictment and do you now plead not guilty to this indictment? Dr. Hertha Oberhäuser was a young and attractive woman in 1946. She was accused of having tortured dozens of concentration camp inmates, of having artificially infected wounds, of having administered lethal injection. And in your affidavit, you admit that you gave five or six lethal injections, is that correct? Nine. Well, you gave injections, and after such injections, the persons died, did they not? And this medical aid resulted in death, did it not? I said, and this medical aid resulted in death, did it not? Wie ich sagte, es sind Patienten gewesen, die sich in der Agonie befanden. Miss Oberhauser, were you ever given any awards or medals? Wenn ich mich recht entsinne, war es, glaube ich, die Kriegsverdienstmedaille. And for what reason did you receive that medal? Das weiß ich nicht. Was it for your participation in the sulfonilamide experiments? Das, das gewiss nicht. I have no further questions, Your Honor. This morning, Tribunal Number One has convened in order to hear statements by the defendants in person. Es gibt ein Wort, das scheint sehr einfach. Und Befehlen. Maßlos sind die Konflikte, die hinter dem Gehorchen sich verstecken. Nüchtern stellt die Anklage die Behauptung von Verbrechen und Mord dagegen und erhebt die Frage meiner Schuld. Es wäre ohne Bedeutung, wenn Freunde und Patienten sich vor mich stellten, um Gutes von mir zu sagen. Das alles ist jetzt belanglos. Ich werde einer solchen Anklage um meinetwillen nicht ausweichen. Ich bekannt wurde Mensch und als Arzt. These statements are now concluded. After over seven months of trial, assuming I think 139 trial days, a hearing of over 80, 85 witnesses, reception and evidence of many hundreds of documents and affidavits, 
the trial insofar as the reception of evidence, the arguments of counsel, the personal statements of the defendants is now concluded. The tribunal will now recess and enter upon the preparation of the judgment to be rendered in this cause. In the case of the United States of America versus Carl Brandt and others defendants, having been closed, the counsel for the prosecution and the defendants having filed their briefs and submitted them to the tribunal, the tribunal, after consideration of the evidence and the briefs filed, is now ready pronounce its judgment. The jurisdiction and powers of this tribunal are fixed and determined by law number 10 of the Control Council for Germany. The pertinent portions of the law with which we are concerned provide as follows. Article 2, 1. Each of the following acts is recognized as a crime. B, war crimes. Atrocities or offenses against person or property constituting violations of the laws or customs of war, including but not limited to murder, ill treatment, or deportation to slave labor, or for any other purpose, of civilian population from occupied territory. Murder or ill treatment of prisoners of war or persons on the seas, killing of hostages, plunder of public or private property, wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages, or devastation not justified by military necessity. Military Tribunal 1 has found and adjudged you guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity as charged under the indictment heretofore filed against you for your said crimes on which you have been and now stand convicted. Military Tribunal 1 sentences you, Wilhelm Weigelbach, to imprisonment for a term of 15 years. Fritz Fischer. Military Tribunal 1 has found and adjudged you guilty of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and membership in an organization declared criminal by the judgment of the International Military Tribunal as charged under the indictment heretofore filed against you. For your said crimes on which you have been and now stand convicted, Military Tribunal 1 sentences you, Fritz Fischer, to imprisonment for the full term and period of your natural, of your natural life. Becker Freising, 
to imprisonment for a term of 20 years to be served at such prison or prisons or other appropriate place of confinement as shall be determined by competent authority. Overweiser, Military Tribunal 1 has found and adjudged you guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. For your said crimes, Military Tribunal 1 sentences you, Werther Oberhäuser, to imprisonment for a term of 20 years. The officer of the guard will remove the defendant, Werther Oberhäuser. Frau Oberhäuser, entschuldigen Sie die Störung von Namen. Mein Name ist Offels. Ich hätte gern gewusst, ob Sie bereit wären, uns... Brandt, Military Tribunal 1 has found and adjudged you guilty of war crimes, crimes against humanity, as charged under the indictment heretofore filed against you. Military Tribunal 1 sentences you, Carl Brandt, to death by hanging, and may God have mercy upon your soul. The officer of the guard will remove the defendant, Brandt. How do you feel about capital punishment? If you are asking about capital punishment in the United States, I'm among its opponents because it has come to be applied in a...